Welcome to Calvary Albuquerque. We pursue the God who is passionately pursuing a lost world. We do this with one another. Through worship, by the word, to the world. Hi, I'm Ken Mansfield, and I used to work with the Beatles. But a while ago, I got an incredible promotion. Instead of working for a band over there, I served the man upstairs. I guess you could say I went from the Fab Four to the Big Three. I went from listening to John, Paul, George, and Ringo to reading about Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Um, Tonight's very special to me, and I'm really excited about being here. Uh, Pastor Skip and I have known each other for a long time, and he keeps saying, why don't you come on down and speak, and da-da-da, and we say, yeah, we're going to do it, and we never did it. So I have a stroke just before Christmas this year, and about two or three months later, guess who calls? Skip. It's about coming down here, and I thought, you know what? I'm going to make it. I'm going to make it down there. It gave me a goal. It gave me something to inspire me. So this is the first time I've been on airplanes since December. And I'm here because I really want to be here with you guys. So thank you very much. Uh, you've uh, heard some great music. The Lively Hearts Club Band, how about that? Redeemed lyrics. I do love that a lot. And uh, you've seen the film. The film is, yeah, was done a few months ago. But uh, because this is such a classy place, I told my hairdresser to kind of put some gray in my hair and thin it out a little bit so I just, you know, appeared more... Mature for you guys, that's all. And then I'm going to give my testimony, but uh, I do have a limited time tonight, so as Taylor Swift always tells her new boyfriends, I won't keep you too long. And, uh, I became a believer very late in life, and I had a problem from the get-go, and a lot of you are going to identify with this. I had a problem with a thing called prayer. Now, here I'd been such a stinker for so long, and all of a sudden now, overnight, I can come before God Almighty Himself. I can talk to Him. I can tell Him my troubles. I can make requests. I can tell Him what's on my heart. I mean, it just, it just didn't really make sense to me that I could do that. But what He did, the minute I became a believer, He put in my heart that I was to read His Holy Word every morning. And now this wasn't a works thing. This wasn't me thinking, you know, I better catch up here. So if he sees me reading the Bible every morning, I'll, I'll be in. It's just something that was supernaturally a part of my being. So now I'm reading the Bible in the morning. And there's these beautiful prayers in there. And I thought, you know what? If I just change a word here or there, he'll never know where I got this stuff, right? I mean, and this is answerable stuff. I mean, Paul, David, Moses... Well, this is just me dragging my old worldly way of thinking into this new, beautiful, and merciful relationship. But this is over 30 years later. And I find every morning when I'm reading my Bible, there's a prayer, there's a parable, there's a teaching, or something that always stops me. Because even though it's thousands of years old, it has something to do with me at this moment. So what I would like to do is open up with a prayer blessing for each and every one of you here tonight. If you please bow your heads, and we will enter God's prayer closet together. And this is uh, Colossians 1, 9 through 14. I'm reading from the Living Bible. Dear Heavenly Father, tonight I'm praying and asking you to help each of us to understand what you want us to know. And I'm asking you to make us wise about spiritual things. And you would guide us so that the way we live will always please you and honor you. 
And I ask you to mold us so that our desires will be to always be doing good, kind things for others. And most of all, Father, that we learn to know you better and better. And everyone who loves to say amen real loud said, Amen. There you go. Oli and Ina have been married for 60 years. They had probably never been more than 300 yards from each other their whole life. They grew up on the same block, a couple houses apart. Went to school from kindergarten all through high school. Got married right out of high school. But this is 60 years later. And it's time for Oli to pass on. And he's upstairs in the bedroom. And we're talking hours, maybe minutes, before Oli passes on to the other side. But all of a sudden, this sweet aroma comes wafting up from downstairs. And he hits his nostrils because you see Ina... She's downstairs in the kitchen, and she's baking his favorite thing in the whole wide world, sweet molasses cookies. Oli smells those cookies cooking. He ain't going nowhere (laughs) until he has at least one more of Ina's sweet molasses cookies. For the last that he has left in him on planet Earth, he crawls out of that bed. He crawls down the stairs. He crawls through the kitchen door, across that kitchen floor, and he gets his hand up on one more. Bam! She hits his hand with a big old spatula. Oh, you know darn well those are for the funeral. (laughs) Well, the sweet smell of my success, shall we say, that was wafting to the man upstairs was not quite as pleasant as Ina's sweet molasses cookies. I guess you'd have to say it was more like a stench in the nostrils of heaven, but I had purposed I was going to come out of those Indian reservation lands in northern Idaho. I was going to come to California. I didn't care what I'd been taught. I didn't care how I'd been brought up. Sex, drugs, rock and roll, wine, women, song, money, cars, and homes. I was going to come to California. As we used to say in London, it was going to be the toppermost of the poppermost for Mr. Mansfield. Thank you very much. <laughs> well, how's that for a spiritual game plan to start your life with? Guess what? Worked for me. I was always in the right place at the right time. I always had the right stuff for every situation. And here is the deception. here lies the deception. The devil is a deceiver, and he had me believing that the reason I was doing so good is because I was so smart, because I was such a hot shot. Nothing to do with a loving Heavenly Father who had truly blessed me with talents and abilities and gave me a knack to make it in a very, very tough business. Well, this is one of the great tragedies of early success, because you get so full of yourself, you leave no room for God in there. And here's the problem. I got lost. I got hooked on the world's ways. And all of a sudden, I found myself making success my God. But then one day, the success went away, and your failure came my way. So what did I do? I found myself alone and confused in a godless world. Now, you saw the New Age section of that film there, and I'm all over that stuff, but I can still read minds. And I can read your minds, and you're thinking, well, hey, Mansfield, if you're such a hotshot, how could you let that happen? Well, I can answer that with one word, God. Nothing was in my life about Him. Everything was about me and what I wanted. And I found myself in such a deep, down, dank, and dirty place that there was no way I was going to get out of there on my own. But I learned something down there. I learned when you're down to nothing, God's up to something. And Okay, uh, I told you I had a stroke, and because of that, my mind wandered, so i got to stick with my notes. So my notes said, when I said that, everybody yelled, Amen. 
So um, let's try it one more time so I can go ahead on. Uh, I, when you're down to nothing, God's up to something. Uh, that's better. Okay, Pastor Skip has given me this real squirrely look down there. That's called pulling an amen in the business, you know. And so I'm not going to do that again. I feel very at home here. If you want to say amen, say amen. If I say something you don't want to say amen, don't say amen, okay? Not there. Um, I spent 30 years in the music business, and I spent five of those years as an executive at Capitol Records. And one of the jobs I had when I was there was called National Promotion Manager. And what my job was, I had like 50 guys that were spread out across the United States that worked for me, and when the new records came out, they took the records to the radio stations, they took the artists around when they were on tour, and took them around and promoted their careers. And in those days, we wore suits and ties. Now, my man in Chicago, and we all had one of these in the workplace, he not only wore suits and ties, he wore fine hats. Now, hats weren't required. He just had this thing for hats. He had the greatest hat collection. I think he, I think he took out the garbage in a fine hat. You know, the guy was just crazy about it. He went out one day, and he bought a hat for $50. Now, you do the math. This is the late 60s. If a hat costs $50, can you imagine what that hat would cost today? This was a fine hat. This was his favorite hat. This is a hat he wore like when a special big-name artist came to town. So here he is one day, he's on his rounds, he's got his famous artist in tow. He goes around the building. Wait, I did say he was my man in, in Chicago, didn't I? The Windy City. Hat blows off. It rolls out in the street. Car runs over it. Hat's gone. I get his expense report the next week. There it is, hat, $50. Well, we didn't have a clothing allowance at Capitol, and that was just his tough luck. I cross off the hat. I check the rest of the report. It's okay. I sign off, send it in for payment, minus the hat. I get his expense report the next week. There's that hat again. I cross it off again, check the report. It's okay. Sign off again, send it in for payment, minus the hat again. I get his expense report. This is starting to become old hat. Oh, I didn't say that. I didn't say that. I didn't. Oh, wait a minute. He got the message. The hat's not on there. I check the report. It's perfect. I'll just sign. He put an asterisk at the bottom of the expense report. The hat's in there somewhere. You find it, boss. <laughs> and that's a true story, by the way. My circumstances, like this hat, like this expense report, God was in there somewhere. I just needed to find him. I finally realized that I needed help. I finally understood that it had gone beyond me and what I could do. I knew in my heart it was time to start seeking God's face. I thank God every day in my life for those circumstances that drew me to Him because I know me and I know how I used to think. And if it wasn't for those circumstances, I would have never come to Him. See? When it's natural, Skip, it's so much better when it's natural like that, isn't it? Okay, I talked about bottoming out. And if this was a three-day seminar, I still couldn't cover how long and how bad my life became after I failed. 
I mean, it just it was just the most amazing thing. Nobody in the music business had a better resume at that time than I did. I came to work at Capitol Records. Within months, I had everybody working for me there. Uh, I made a, was made a director at Capitol. Now I'm working with the Beatles at Capitol, and we hit it off. And then they asked me to become the U.S. manager of their record company. Went to London, helped them set it up. And then when the Beatles thing was falling apart, and Apple thing was falling apart. I left and went to MGM. I was the vice president of MGM Records. Then Andy Williams hired me away to be the president of a CBS label that he owned. I thought to myself, you know what? I'm making all these big bucks for these big companies. Why don't I make the big bucks for myself? So I set up my own corporation called Hometown, uh, Hometown Productions, and uh, I was producing some pretty big acts in those days. Now a lot of you don't recognize these names, but Andy Williams, uh, David Cassidy, Don Ho, Flying Brito Brothers. I mean, these were big bands in those days. But all of a sudden, I quit getting hit records. I quit getting the big projects in my company. And the company starts falling apart. Now I'm spending all my time trying to just hold things together. No more creativity, just hanging on to things. Well, eventually, the company goes under, takes me down with it, and now I'm broke in L.A. and out of work. So I realized, you know, what I got to do is I just have to suck it up, go back and get a job at the corporations again, the record companies. And I was the kind of guy that didn't make enemies on the way up. And also... Half the people that were running these companies now were guys that I'd met or that I'd hired. They were in those positions because of me. No problem, right? Can't get a job. Doors were closed. Didn't make sense to me because I didn't know how the Lord works at the time. But I couldn't get a job in L.A. So I thought, well, I'm bombing out here. I spent five years in Nashville, uh, very successful. I was a producer to the outlaw movement, Waylon, Willie, and the boys. So I thought, I'll just go back and I'll just pick up where I left on. I went to Nashville and I couldn't even get arrested. Well, I could get arrested, you know, the life I was leading. But I was looking for a job. Doors were closed again. It didn't make sense. I just couldn't figure out. I couldn't get a job in the mailrooms of the companies that I used to run. Now, picture this. I was a Beatles executive and I can't get a job anywhere. Well, I finally did get a job. I persevered and I got a job in my business. They had just built a brand new amphitheater outside of Nashville called Starwood. And uh, I don't know if you've heard of it. It was about 10 miles outside of town, and it seated 15 to 20,000 people. And every band in the world wanted to play uh, Starwood because it was Nashville, Tennessee. It was just a hip place to be. And uh, we were a non-union shop. So here I am, a 50-year-old guy, almost 50 years old, and I get a job as a stagehand, which means I'm schlepping all this heavy equipment that the 27-year-olds are doing. And let's say a show goes up at 7 o'clock, 5 o'clock in the morning, the semis start backing up to the, to the stage. And we're in the bowels of these trucks unloading this heavy equipment. We're building, when the heavy metal bands came to town, we would build a whole little town on that stage. And we're flying the sound and the lights and all that. And because we were non-union, uh, the show goes up at 7. If we were running behind, we didn't get a break. Now you picture this. Nashville, Tennessee, 93 degrees, humidity, 92.5%. And after about 10 hours of this, you one funky dude, I tell you. You don't look good, you don't feel good, and I promise you, you do not smell good. Now, I mentioned some people that I'd worked with that you didn't know, but I know one person I worked with that you do know, and that's a gentleman named James Taylor. And James, a lot of you don't know, was one of the first people we signed to Apple Records in London. So here I am. 
I'm in London with James. I'm the guy in Carnaby Brothers suit with a ton suntan from California. And, uh, you know, here we are. We're with the Beatles and all that. It was really a, a great experience. Then he and Peter Asher, his producer, when they left, they went to Warner Brothers in L.A. That's when I went to MGM. Now we're in, we're in Hollywood, and it's a small group of people, a kind of a clique. with Ringo and myself and Harry Nielsen, just a small group of people that, people that were with the Beatles. And uh, I'm hanging out in the studio with James and Peter. They're cutting little records like You've Got a Friend and, you know, these kind of things, uh, Fire and Rain. And then I'm over in my offices. We've got a little band called Eric Burden War. You know, we were just on top of the world. We were invincible. Well, I got to work with James a third time, and he was headlining at the Starwood Amphitheater. And it was my job to walk up to him and say, Mr. Taylor, where would you like me to spend, uh, put your amps for tonight's concert? And James looked at me, and I had a, like a five-foot smell radius, and I'm standing there, and the sweat's running down my face, and I'm dirty and grimy. And he's looking at me, and it took him a while just to kind of recognize who it was. And when he recognized, I could just see the pain in his eyes, what he felt for me. But this was during my bottom. And this is when I had come to the Lord. And God had to take care of something in me right away. And he got on it right away. And I don't know how many times Skip has stood up here and talked to you guys about a thing that God hates. And that's pride. And I had a boatload and he got after that right away. But I'll tell you, when he really got in my, my soup and tur- turned my noodles around was the night of the Whitney Houston concert. And Whitney was at the top of her stardom, and she comes out on stage, and she sings her first song, and she did not like the way her monitors were placed. So she stepped back and singled for a stagehand to come out and sort out the monitors. Now, I'm not about, about to go out there in front of fifteen and 20,000 people, because I used to be a big, big man in that town. I didn't want them to know what had happened to me. I turn around, I start to shove one of the young dudes out, and God said, whoops, hold on your hoss. We're going to take a big chunk out of that pride tonight, so you get your happy buns out there, because you work for me now. Okay? I suck it up, I walk out on stage, and wouldn't you know, Whitney made me get down on my knees to arrange those monitors. I'm down on my knees, I look up, and the Starwood Amphitheater just kind of went from the stage back up like that. And the front row is just about as close as this front row. Sweat stripping down my face. I look out, and there's all the record company presidents and famous producers and executives that I used to be one of. I used to sit in those seats with those people. They've been wondering what happened to Ken Mansfield. Now they knew. And they're looking at me. They're blinking like frogs in a hailstorm. You know, they just can't figure out what's, what's going on. I looked in their faces, and I looked up in the night sky, and said, Lord, Father, God, this is the single most embarrassing moment in my life. I've never been so humiliated. But, Father, God, I love you more than anything I've ever loved. I want what you want more than anything I could ever want. Father, God, I understand what we're doing here. I'm with you. Game's on. I arranged those monitors like monitors have never been arranged in the history of rock and roll. August 18th, 1987, National Tennessee Starwood Amphitheater, Whitney Houston Concert. Those monitors were arranged unto the Lord. Okay? You can't do better than that, can you? God loved me so much that he knew I had to be broke 
so that I could be broken. Now, here's the good news tonight. And this is about the good news. God is the single greatest economist of all time. He will use our past, good, bad, or indifferent, for His glory. It doesn't matter how ugly a sinner we've been. It doesn't matter how long we've been bad or how terrible we've been. Or maybe you're the kind of person who only committed one little bitty sin your whole life. <laughs> or maybe you're more like me that had a long, wretched, smelly, just unterrible, horrible life. doesn't matter. You can bring that one little bitty sin to him or you can bring that whole stinking mess. God doesn't care. He loves you. All mistakes are forgotten. All sins are forgiven. When we accept Jesus Christ as our Savior, God will turn to good what Satan meant for evil. Don't make me hold this up again. That's embarrassing, okay? God will turn to good what Satan meant for evil. There you go. Okay. Let's look at this phenomenon called the Beatles. Do you think God was unaware of these four guys down here? That he didn't happen to notice how influential, how powerful? Just, just these guys were so big. I can't imagine. I mean, in those days, they were like the Pied Piper to the world's youth. And I can't imagine that God didn't have a purpose for all this. So what I want you to do is listen very carefully to what I'm about to say right now. Because this is not as abstract or as implausible as you might think. I'm asking you to consider the following list of possibilities that the whole reason for the Beatles' success, the whole reason for my success so that I would come to their attention, and then they would invite me to come to work for them, and then the whole reason that the, oh, for my meteoric rise and then my fall was so I would be brought to a point to accept Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. And then I would be led to write these books about the industry I was in and all the you know inside stuff, but I also coupled my testimony in that. So people would buy the book to read about the Beatles and they have to wade through some other stuff, right? Now think about it. For decades, God was just weaving this tapestry. Every first time Ringo fell off a bicycle, first plane I got on, first prayer, everything in our lives was just woven. Things could have been off a minute or an hour or a day, but everything came down to the point to where I would be standing here before you tonight, giving my testimony, because I think God had his eyes on one person all the way back then. Now, you're looking at me like frogs blinking at a hailstorm, because that doesn't sound very possible. I'm going to give you an example of something that happened to me that's a true story. I was speaking at a very large church in Southern California, and we were going to do a... Uh, Pastor Skip and I are going to do a question and answer tonight. And... Uh, a pastor was going to come up, and he was going to do all questions from the audience. But I went a little long on my talk, and they were a very large church, and they were kind of in a residential zone, so they had to have the doors shut, the lights off by 10 o'clock at night. That was it. And so by the time the pastor got up on the stage, he only had time to call on one or two people. Now, I don't know how he saw this lady way in the back of the auditorium, but he called on her, and she stood up, she said, Pastor, I don't have a question for Mr. Mansfield, but I do have a comment. When I was a young girl, I went to this church, and we had the most incredible youth ministry. And we had a fantastic youth pastor just for the girls. And the neat thing, every year, is we'd go away for a full-week retreat. And I remember one year, me and my three best girlfriends, we went on the retreat. And every day, he would have, like, really good lessons and things, activities. And every night, he would have something special where he would end up with a real good moral message for us. 
She said, I remember it was a Wednesday night, and so we sat down, and the youth pastor said, uh, before we do anything tonight, you're going to do what I ask you to do. You're going to promise, you're going to commit to me that you will pray for the salvation of a very decadent group of young people. He said, what I'm going to do is I'm going to pass around a hat, you're going to draw a name out of the hat, and you promise to me that you will pray for that person's salvation till you know in your heart that they're saved or you have empirical knowledge. The names in the hat were the Beatles and the guys that worked with them. She said, me and my three girlfriends all picked the same name, Ken Mansfield. Who's Ken Mansfield? <laughs> she said, I wanted to pray for Paul McCartney. You know, that's, what, that's what I wanted to do. But she said, you know, I, I had promised, I took that slip of paper, put it in my Bible with Ken Mansfield's name, and I prayed all through junior high, all through high school, all through college, even when I got in the work, workplace, I prayed for this stranger's name, for his salvation. She said, I got out in the workplace, and I got really busy. I didn't have quite as much time to read the Bible, quite as much time to pray. Then I started having a really good time. Then I really started rocking and rolling. I turned my back on my walk with the Lord entirely. I could have cared less. And I was just got deeper and deeper into the decadence. But, you know, about a year ago, my life fell apart. And she said, I have never been so miserable in my life. This last year has been, I can't tell you how horrible it's been. She said, I woke up about a week ago, and I felt like God was tugging at my heart. He's saying, hey, my child, remember what it was like when you were with me? Remember how sweet it was? Look at your life now, and look what it was like then. I got up this morning, I opened the newspaper, and there's an ad in there that said, Ken Mansfield, who used to be with the Beatles, is giving his testimony at this church tonight. He said, it was like that ad was just jumping up at me. It was like God would say, hey, you think I ever left you? You think I don't answer? I've come here tonight, Pastor, for one reason. And that's just to tell you, I'm back. Okay? That's a true story. So what's this all about tonight? This is not about the Beatles. It's certainly not about, about me. Tonight is about Jesus Christ and a loving Heavenly Father who truly cares about us no matter how shameful and wretched our lives have been. He sees us coming from way off down that road and He's been waiting there forever with arms wide open just waiting to welcome us home. You can say, hey, it's okay, my child. I forgot all that stuff. I've forgiven all your sins. With just one word, you wiped out decades of decadence. And that word was yes. Yes, I'm sorry. Yes, I need your forgiveness. Yes, I need your grace. Yes, I need a fresh start. Yes, I need your unconditional love. Yes, I believe you died for me. Yes, I accept you as my Lord and Savior. Yes, I want to spend eternity with you, Jesus. You see this awesome God, think about it, the creator of everything that ever has been or ever will be, the one true God that knows everything about each and every one of us. This magnificent, wondrous God wants to live inside of each and every teeny little one of us. He wants to heal us. He wants to prosper us. He wants to love on us. He wants to forgive us. He wants to grant us his un 
unbelievable peace. It's a peace that you can't understand. It's the peace that passes all understanding. And you can't understand it until you have it. I'm here tonight to tell you that there's nothing out there of value without Him. It's pretty obvious I've been there and I've done that. Think about it. The limos couldn't have been any longer. The hotel suites couldn't have been any more luxurious. The restaurants couldn't have been more exquisite. The people I was with couldn't have been more famous. The places we went to couldn't have been more exotic. But when I look back now on myself, instead of seeing this hot shot, this guy that's really on top of the world, it's like I'm looking at myself through this kind of this darkened screen and I just see this young, pathetic, pitiful young man trying to fill a haunting emptiness with stuff. You see, I did. I lived in the biggest states and I ate off the gold plates of the silver spoons. But I was also eating the pods of the pigs in the pigsties. And I was wallowing in the decadence of the slime of the high life and the low life. And I'll confess to you tonight, I squandered the inheritance of a loving Heavenly Father. One day, I realized that the lowest servant in the house of the Lord had better than I ever did when I was in the world. So what did I do? I asked for a fresh start. Just like that, he welcomed me home. He put his robe around my shoulder, his ring on my finger, and his love in my heart. Now I did. I lost the world, but I got on the right side of eternity. Now, nobody stood taller than me the night I got on my knees and asked Jesus to come into my life. Eternity, you know, that's going to be the real long part of our existence. I think it's really worthwhile just asking yourself, where do I want to spend the long part? Now, I open up with a prayer of blessing tonight, and I would like to close the prayer. And this is from Psalm 90, verses 12 to 17. And uh, if you have your Bibles, don't open up. This is just how I take God's Word to make the prayers my own. So please bow your head once more. Lord, Father God, I'm asking you to teach us how to number our days. Help us to recognize just how few they are. Help us to spend them as we should. And Father, come and bless each and every person here tonight. Give us constant joy to the end of our lives. Give us gladness in proportion to our former misery. Replace the evil years with good. And let us see your miracles. And let our children see the glorious things that you are. And Lord, Father God, I'm asking you to favor us by giving us your kind of success so that we can have your kind of permanence in all that we may do. And everyone who likes to say amen real loud said amen. Amen. Praise God. Amen. Ken Mansfield. Thank you. That's good. Thank you. Thank you. Ken, I'm going to bring you this yes, way. Go. Have a seat, please, just for a okay. minute. Not you, Ken. Well, you uh, can in a moment. Uh, uh, over here. <laughs> You're right over here. Okay. And I'm right here. I must be in the front row, right? Okay. So, um, that was great. That's a real testimony, isn't it? I mean, that... I've heard this, and I've read it, and I'm moved by it every yeah. time, every time I, um, I hear it or read it. But 
In the time remaining, I have a couple questions, Kenny. Okay. Um, in the little film we saw at the very beginning when it showed the Beatles and Capitol Records, they were sort of at the apex of their career. You were down there in the bottom. There it is. You're 27 years old in this photograph. <laughs> and the Beatles are like 24, 25, 23, something like that. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So they're like young kids and they're world famous. Um, how does fame change a person? What have you observed? Well, I think... Um with the Beatles and most people in that, you don't expect it. You don't understand what it really is. And what you do is, first of all, you start believing in your own press releases. And then it becomes like a different world entirely. Uh, it's just like you, you forget what's normal anymore. And then so many things are offered to you. And what I did, and most of us do, is I gave away a little piece of myself. I said, well, okay, I know that's not right, but that's just a little thing. I'll go ahead and do that. And after a while, you give away so many pieces of yourself, there's really nothing left. And so uh, there's just a, a thing after a while where you're just a center of attention and everybody's, you know, just going crazy over you. That's what happens. Mm. Um, George Harrison had a spiritual side yeah. to him. We, you know, he got into... Um, um, kind of Indian mysticism and Indian religions and you mentioned that he even influenced you is that right yes he did um, George was probably George was truly seeking God there's no question about it but he just was a little deceived you might say and he put such an example for me he was so kind and he was so gentle I would be in London and I was scared to death because I had to keep it together with the Beatles. Those were my marching orders from Capitol Records. The Beatles were 50% of our business, and they'd ask for me to be their guy. So if I made one mistake, well, the manager, the uh, president of Capitol Industries said, when it comes to Beatles, Ken, there's no margin for error. Oh, man. You can do what you want, your expense report, go to do whatever you want. We won't question it. Just keep it together with the Beatles. And I forgot what the question was. <laughs> no. um, the George had a spiritual yes. side, and he sort of yeah. got you into like having a guru. And yeah, so I would be in London, and he would be more concerned about me being tired, or was I okay? He actually, I was sitting in a meeting late one night, and I started nodding off, and he came and said, "Hey, come on, Ken," and he took me to the hotel and put me in a bed. I mean, that's the kind of guy he mm. was, because he knew the pressure that was on me, and basically said, "I'll cover it for you." You know. Mm. So. Did you kind of get into meditation like he did at that time? Yes, I did. Um, I got a guru, not the one the Beatles had. And I got into meditation. And uh, I was told, you know, you can do meditation just to calm yourself. You don't have to follow a, you know, a guru or anything like that. The, the meditation practices were designed by a guru, but you don't have to follow him. I see. And then... Uh, I'm told, hey, the guru's coming to America. Would you like to meet him? And the guy was wonderful. He was a really cool guy. Next thing I know, I'm teaching meditation. I'm doing advanced meditation. I'm doing all these, you know, trot talk and candle things and astral projection and crystal healing and all that. And I spent 10 years in that, that thing. You and you, you had a line in the <laughs> little film that I thought was like one of the greatest pickup lines of all history. You said when you met Connie, who's now your wife, yeah. that when you met her, you said, well, I'll change gurus for you or yes. something, something to that effect. Is that <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah, I did. Well, she was a sold-out Christian, and she had actually set herself aside for a year just to press in closer to the Lord. She wasn't dating or anything. This is when everything fell apart for me. I come roaring into Nashville. 
I'm a stoner, I'm broke, I got a bad reputation with the ladies, and all these things. And, you know, I was, if she put an ad in the paper, or if I put an ad in the paper, nobody in their right mind would answer that. But we met one night, and something just clicked, so we started dating. Now, here she sold out the Lord, and you really bothered I carried a picture of my guru in my pocket. You know, she, <laughs> she thought that was pretty weird. So we would have these uh, arguments. She'd say, well, Jesus is the way. And I said, no, he's a way. She said, oh, he's the way. And I said, you know, he is. He's an ascended master. He's one of the greatest of all times. And uh, he is one of the biggies, you know. But uh, there are many paths at the top of the mountain. She said, no, he's the way. Hmm. And so uh, uh, we just kept having this argument. And so we've been dating for a little while. And finally said, I need to talk to you tonight. And she said, uh, I cannot be unequally yoked. And I have to choose between you and Jesus. And she said, I choose Jesus. Now, what she'd been doing, she'd been talking the talk. She was taking me to all the uh, Christian concerts, uh, taking me to the churches in Nashville with the good musicians and all that, just trying to get to me that way. But when she walked out her walk, I thought, wow, I want to have something like that. You know, I've never thought I would have something I would be willing to give up, something that I wanted to have, that I would be willing to give it up. I want to have something as precious as that is to her. And that was my conversion right there. So she's the one the Lord put in your life to That's bring right. you to Christ. That's right. She was a patient woman. Totally. Totally. Yeah. Because she had no business dating me. And she, and she said, I'm not doing missionary dating here. She said, but, you know. <laughs> um, back in 1966, John Lennon was having a conversation yeah. with somebody from the London Evening yeah. Standard, a British newspaper. And he said off the cuff, and as I remember, it was a private conversation. But I remember hearing about this. Yes in church from the priest who was, you know, getting all over the Beatles. And John Lennon made a statement that the Beatles had become more popular than Jesus. Yeah. And that hit the world press. Yeah. And you were, I mean, you, I, you came I, a little bit at the I tail end of that. tail that, end of that, yeah. That followed them, didn't it? Yes, I mean, it did. You caught some of that fray. In fact, you know, he said we're bigger than Jesus. But he was making a point, and it was more or less a private conversation that there was something wrong with the world's youth, that they were worshiping a band instead of like Jesus. Now, he wasn't saying they should worship Jesus. He was using that as a good example. But that's what he meant. He was just trying to make a point that there was something wrong with the youth. Um, he could never get out from underneath that. In fact, I, I talked to somebody that was with him shortly before he died, and they said that John was still troubled by that, no matter how much he apologized, no matter how much he tried to explain himself, that that actually followed him to the grave. Wow. You yeah. know, I, as I remember hearing that statement, but then I also remember thinking that what he said was true. Yes. Is that I, I, as a young person at the time, and I was really, I was, it was, the Beatles really my older brother's band. I was just kind of a wannabe. <laughs> but, but I remember when, when that statement, I thought, well, it is true. You know, because when I came to church, it was so boring to me. Yeah. And the music was like a cure for insomnia. Yeah. And, <laughs> and you know, the only reprieve from that was yeah. lively music, and they produced it. And it, yeah. sort of, it was sort of an indictment of the church yeah. that they had just gotten gotten into this rut, and they didn't need to be that way because John and Paul, John Lennon and Paul McCartney met at a church they function. Did. Yes. A lot of people don't realize that. And, of course, they were playing outside the church. And I've always thought, you know, if Chuck Smith, my pastor, would have pastored that church, he would have invited him inside yes, the church to play and encourage them to do it for That's the Lord. That's right. And they would have seen all those long hairs in there and stuff. And they, yeah. So, looking back on your life, uh, Ken Mansfield, 
What's your greatest accomplishment? What do you want to be known for? I want to be known for loving the Lord. I want to be known for um, for coming out of such a dark hole and dark life and coming forward to tell about what I feel about Jesus and about the Lord. And I want to be known that just sitting here with someone like you and in the ministry. I just am proud to be here. Mm. Bless you. Looking back, what was your what was your darkest moment? You've had a few pretty yeah. tough spells. Yeah, I've had two serious battles with cancer and then a stroke recently. I think the worst point in my life is when I totally bottomed out and uh, I was just desperate and I had nobody to go to. And here's the funny thing is I had all kinds of friends, but when I bottomed out, I was alone and I had no one to go to. And then later on, when I've had these serious battles, I've got somebody to go to every time. He's always there. He's always with me. He's got all the answers. He's got a rule book that has all the answers in it. There's no question. So no matter what happens, I have his promises that he will turn good to evil. He will, you know, he's right there. And so uh, that's what um, the comparison of the darkest time of my life and the happiest time of my life. is such a difference. Hmm. Yeah. Did you ever doubt during those times? Oh, boy. I was telling uh, Skip earlier, when I had the second cancer, it was brutal. I never realized that there could be so much pain. And I saw it coming, and I made a deal with God. And that's kind of, <laughs> I guess you really shouldn't do that. Like somebody once told me, this is not a negotiation, you know. But uh, I just told him, I said, Lord... I'm going to promise you right now, because if I make this promise to you, I can't back out. I promise you, I'm never going to back away from you. I'm going to stay with it. I don't care what happens. I'm in. I'm in to stay. And I'm promising you that right now. Mm. And uh, he was faithful. Yeah. Um, We were talking before the service about the pain during that Mm. time. And that you were speaking about making a deal with God. You just said... Lord, just don't let the pain be so bad. And then what happened after you prayed that? The uh, pain got worse. I, I asked him just to back off a little bit, and then it got worse. So, so I, but I what, made a promise. What do, you, what do you do in those things? What did you? How do? How do you go, get through that? Well, uh, to say maybe I wasn't a little mad at God. To maybe uh, I tried telling him where he was all wrong in this thing. And, uh, you know, told him how he <laughs> How'd that sh- go for you? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> told him how he should do things and, and uh, just really how upset I was and all that kind of stuff and how horrible it was. And then I realized uh, I wasn't complaining. I was praying. When you talk to God and when you tell him what you're honestly feeling, That's right. you're praying. That's right. You're pouring out you're, your heart to yeah, him. Yeah, like you David are. I was, pouring, I was doing everything uh, I, I thought I should do, but I didn't realize I was doing it. Ah. But when you're that close to him, it's just automatic. And I realized, gee, I just really prayed to you, didn't I? And then the pain got worse. No, it did. <laughs> Kenny, um, you're, you're a happy person. You're not yeah. a bitter person for all no. of that. I mean, no. the lows in life, you know, being a stagehand after being way yeah. up at the top with the Fab Four, the cancer, the stroke. Um, how did you fight bitterness during that time? Um, I think that's something that's been your heart. Every time I start to feel bitter or feel sorry for myself, 
it seemed like he would bring an example into my life. I'd see something on TV, and I'd say, gee, I don't have it so bad after all. And then I had his promises, you know. It was just something about, um, I told you once, I had a saying that carried me through all that, is either you believe or you don't. You know, you can't take the Bible and pick the things out that you like and say, yeah, that's for me, but that there I don't care about. Either you believe or you don't. And if he says something, it's either true or it's not. And I'm not going to call God a liar. You know, I'm never going to do that. So hmm. I just um, carried me through his word, his promises, and there's just that thing he puts in your... He puts something inside of you. He fills that haunting emptiness, as I said. Hmm. And you just know where to go. Hmm. Um, a final question. The role of music. <laughs> I mean, this is your, it's been your life. You've yeah. been a music producer... Director, what is the what do you see God's intention for music? And I ask that question. I know that's a very broad question because yes, every single culture has a national anthem. Yes. As, you know, we move our feet and move yes. our bodies to yes. music and commercials. You know, yeah. it's all meant to move a person. What was God's deal with music? I think He gave us the music as a vehicle for the poets and the the teachers of our day to to reach people through. And I don't care how bad the music gets and how decadent it is. The music that really pays out and lives out is the gospel music, the music of the Word. And I think that's what God gave us music for. It's a beautiful thing. So He doesn't give us beautiful things. It was just that we make a bad thing out of it. That's one thing. But His music is, is His heart. Hmm. And uh, the Psalms, that's all. Those are songs, as yeah. the Bible says. So they obviously they're a pretty good thing. You know. Okay, I lied. I have one more question. No, okay. Okay. That's, wait, that's the end of the so, list. So, <laughs> yes, yeah, it's not on the little list I wrote up, but you reminded me of a question I asked you when you spoke at our church, Ocean Hills, years ago, a decade mm. ago in California. And I think uh, I asked you, Ken Mansfield, if you could do it all over again, would you do it all over again? Skip asked me that on the stage, and I never had asked me that. Anybody asked me that question before, and it kind of floored me when you did that. And I thought about it, and I went, "No." And you said, "That's the right answer." And uh, I realized that everything that I've gone in my life was to give me a purpose in His purpose. And uh, let's take let's take the New Age thing for just a second. I was in New Age for ten years. I got up every morning, I did my meditations, my chanting, I did my, you know, my new age devotions and all that. When I became a Christian, next day I got up, I had a Bible, and I prayed to God. I was like, I've been training my whole life, you know. He used that whole ten years of that. Uh, nobody can speak to a heroin addict better than somebody who was a heroin addict, and then, then it gets cured and gets saved. No one can speak to a new ager better than I can because I was there, I was in the heart of it. You know, you go, he put, let's allow, he allows them, I think that's the word, allows these things to happen so that you can carry on for him. Mm. Okay, so, finally, and this is not a question. <laughs> okay. But you have, besides being a record producer, you have yeah. written five books I'm looking yeah. at here, right? Yes. And you're going to be in the foyer afterwards signing books yes. if anybody would like to yes. get one you'll be there which is great <laughs> so the first one I read and I remember just taken yeah. by this book it was called The Beatles The Bible and Bodega Bay, Bay where you lived yes. and that is a journey that's your testimony that's it your is. journey it through is. music through life to come to know the Lord right yes, yes. okay so then your second book oh, this is a... was this one oh yeah <laughs> this, I love it it's called The White Book 
And if you're familiar with the Beatles' white album, it's embossed on the front. It looks just like the white album. It's exactly the, replica, yeah. Right. So, and the white album was that great, <laughs> crazy album with such hit songs as Everybody's Got Something to Hide Except for Me and My Monkey. Yeah, and Why Don't We Do in the Lord. Is that right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Did I say the song right? Yes. Okay. So, this has got great photographs in it. Yes. And what is this one about? This one is about uh, it's a Christian publisher that wanted a Christian author to write a book about a non-Christian topic that Christians could read. So that's interesting. And it was a follow-up to this book, where my testimony was in that book. So um, I'd love this book. Yeah. Well, it's a pretty cool. Inside book. stories that you wouldn't get anywhere else unless you were you. Now here's the problem. Uh, this book is out of print. They only made 40,000. They're individually numbered, just like the White Album. And I've only got like eight left. Now they're here. You so, have eight left? Yeah, I've got, yeah. Well, I've got a few more. You may want to get in line now. <laughs> but, okay. Um, anyway, this is a real collector's item. Okay, then, was this your next one? Yeah. This is your third one, Stumbling on Open Ground. No, this is my next one, okay. Between Wyoming. Between Wyoming's. What on earth does that mean? That is a, um, well, I was born in Wyoming County, Pennsylvania, and then I grew up in Idaho. And I was on my way halfway between those two cities once, and I thought, gee, I'm between Wyoming's right now. Huh. And this book is about my time with the different famous people I worked with, whether it was Glenn Campbell or the Beach Boys or whatever. And I take these stories and uh, get in a van called Moses, and we retrace our steps, like when I was with Waylon, and I'd drive into Austin, and I'd tell a Waylon story. Then I'd go along, and I'm out in the desert. I would talk to God. Then we get to Nashville, and I would tell a Nashville story. And that's what this book is. It's kind of a travels with Charlie, except I was with my wife, not a dog. And uh, oh, Charlie is a dog, by the way. I'm sorry. No, yeah, no. It's, this is also a good book because I love yeah. the stories of the, of the yeah. different people that you've um, either managed or rubbed shoulders with. Yeah. Okay, this one, interesting title, and I think we're, Lenny and I are even mentioned in this book. Yes, you Stumbling are. Stumbling on Open Ground. Love, God, Cancer, and Rock, rock and, roll. and Roll. Wow. What a subtitle. Yeah. That's based on the Jeremiah thing, if you've stumbled in Jordan. Or what is it? Yeah. If you... You stumble out on, on open ground. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. Stumbling on open ground. I mean, I'm home free. I'm a Christian. I believe everything God has to say. And when I have doubts and stuff, I'm on open ground, but I'm stumbling still. And we all do that. Yeah. yeah. The text is, if racing with mere men has wearied you... How will you race against the horses? If you stumble and fall on open ground, yeah. what will you do in Jordan's jungles? Yes. Jeremiah 12.5. Yes. I should memorize that. <laughs> <laughs> or just read it off your cover. Oh, my book, yeah. Okay, and then the last one is called Rock and, and a Heart, heart Place. Place. Yes. What does that mean? This is about rock and roll. Uh, people who become very famous in some of the biggest bands of all time. They've been on the stage in front of hundreds of thousands of people and their lives fell into decadence, no matter how they've been brought up or what they've been taught, and then their redemption, their conversion into Christianity. And these stories are just beautiful. There's such a common thread through everybody about what they went through in their walk with the Lord. Hmm. And so, well, you can see there's people from Buffalo, Springfield, the Birds, uh, Grand Funk Railroad, Kansas, Corn, uh, Brian Head Welsh yeah. is in there. Pointer Sisters, the Ronettes, the Turtles. Really fascinating stories. Of all the people you've met, I yeah. just had another question pop in. Okay. Of all the people you've met, <laughs> famous stars, rock and roll stars, which one did you like the most? Wow. Uh, 
Well, Ringo and I actually spent the most time together. We've worked together since 1965. Was that Ringo? Ringo Starr. Oh, right, Ringo. Ringo, I'm Ringo, sorry. Ringo, that's yes. right. And then uh, in the 90s, I represented him again. Our lives fell apart together. Our lives got back together. So I've really had the longest history with, with him, I think, of anybody. And of all the famous people you've ever met, which one did you like the least? Ringo. <laughs> I mean, he can be a jerk, you know. <laughs> no. Oh, I don't know. You, you just can't say those names. I just put you... I did like a Larry King just now, didn't yeah. I? Yeah. Okay. Uh, if you can't say something nice, you know, okay. you know, say okay. something mean. Okay. <laughs> well... Ken, you've been a friend, and, and I love you, and listen, on behalf of the band, you know, we miss you. Oh, yes, yes. But uh, thank you for being here. Can we just close? Can I just pray for you? Oh, can you we sure pray for can, you? please. Father, just thank you for Ken Mansfield and this incredible, crazy, wonderful journey he's been on, where he has not only met and rubbed shoulders with, but helped manage and produce some of the world's famous musical talent. But Lord, thank you how that through all of that craziness, you brought him to a relationship with the woman who pointed him to Jesus. That woman, his wife, Connie, who's with him tonight. And the two have become one, and they love each other so deeply. Thank you for that testimony of of marriage and love. And Lord, thank you, Lord, that he's representing you and honoring you. And, And even though he's had some setbacks, some physical struggles that he's back wanting to minister to people and point people to the truth. Thank you for these books. It's just so well written and a a lasting legacy, Lord, of encouragement. So bless him. Strengthen him physically. Give him stamina, Lord, as as he gets back on the plane and goes back home. And I pray he'd feel encouraged by just being here. Yes. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Praise God. Amen. What binds us together is devotion to worshiping our Heavenly Father, dedication to studying His Word, and determination to proclaim our eternal hope in Jesus Christ. For more teachings from Calvary Albuquerque and Skip Heitzig, visit calvaryabq.org.